Let's bow together in prayer. Our great God and Father in heaven, we're thankful that we can meet together this evening on an overcast afternoon. We're thankful that we can sing these strong hymns by which we speak aloud your promises that you have first revealed to us in your word and pray that your kingdom would indeed come and your will be done on earth even as it is done in heaven. We're thankful for your providential care over us in the first half of this week, for the prayers that you have answered, for the needs that you have helped, for the brothers and sisters that you have sustained in many trials. And we pray that your kind providence and power would continue to be with us even as you promise to dwell with us, to be our God, even as you have taken us to be your people. We pray that you would forgive our sins, for we know that we have sinned against you in many ways, more even than we know. And we pray, O God, that you would make us truly repentant and humble before you. We thank you for Christ Jesus, who bore our sins upon the cross, who died and rose again the third day, that we in him and with him might be justified before you and accounted as righteous forever. We ask your blessing, O God, upon our brothers and sisters who are ill, those who have gone through medical crises even over the last few days, those who have gone through surgery or recovering from it recently, those who are preparing for medical procedures and operations, that you would be with and bless each one, grant healing, grant comfort, and grant peace of mind and of soul even in the midst of these days. We pray that you would comfort those who are grieving and sorrowing over the death of loved ones. We pray that you would be with the expectant mothers and the babies that they carry, and that you would bless all of our covenant children, God, that you would continue to grow and mature them in faith. We ask your blessing upon our nation. Lord, we pray that you would raise up godly men to lead us, and that you would restrain the folly and wickedness of those who hold power even at this time. We pray that you would grant this nation repentance and true revival, and that we would indeed confess that Jesus is Lord, and seek to honor Him, to glorify you, Father, Son, and Spirit in all that we do. We pray your blessing upon our study tonight, that your Spirit would guide and help us as we open your Word together, that we would be careful inquirers into those promises and prophecies of Scripture, and that we would receive and believe your Word, O God, though there may be much in it that we do not yet grasp or understand. Help us to believe and to rejoice in the work that you have promised yet to do. We pray in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so you have two handouts in the back. One of them you had uh, last week, and so you might still have a copy of that. Uh, That is marked Session 3, in which we talk about an optimistic eschatology being the straightforward reading of many Old Testament prophecies. And then you also have Session 4, which we may or may not get to tonight. I make no promises about it. But Session 4 is an optimistic eschatology, is the straightforward reading of many New Testament promises. And both of these lessons kind of unfold in a similar way. We're making our way through selected portions, both prophetic and promissory, in both the Old and the New Testament Scriptures, and just taking a, you know, kind of a general reading of those texts without doing detailed exegesis. We realize that any one of these passages, or maybe all of these passages, could be disputed by people who take a different eschatological point of view or who might have greater pessimism about the amount of global or cultural transformation that the gospel is going to work. Any one of these passages could be disputed and the interpretation we're making of it. What we're really trying to do is lay before you the weight of evidence and to say that there is an overall sense 
of the future of this present world in light of the coming of Christ, in light of the preaching of the gospel. There is a general trajectory that is anticipated by the prophets, that is praised in the Psalms, and that is promised even further in the New Testament scriptures. And we're trying to lay that out last week, this week, and probably next week as well. Now last week we spent all of our time looking at selected portions of the Psalms. And you had several of those references on, uh, on your study guide. We began, uh, even before the Psalms, I should say, we began with the creation mandate. We talked about um, passages in the book of Genesis related to the Abrahamic covenant, uh, and then ultimately the Mosaic administration of the covenant of grace, the Davidic covenant, and then moving into the Psalms. We saw that in many different ways, these passages and these prophecies are anticipating a kingdom of God that is global. That it is not merely that a select few from among the nations will be saved, but rather it is that the nations will bow. The nations will acknowledge the Messiah of Yahweh, the, the Anointed One, Christ. That kings will come and pay homage to Jesus as the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And that this is the repeated refrain, even, uh, even as we see in the Psalms. For example, what we said in Psalm 66 and Psalm 67. Psalm 66 says, Say to God, how awesome are your works. Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. It's through the greatness of God's power that the enemies of God will submit to Him. Now we might say, well, yes, that's going to happen on the day of judgment. That's going to happen at the second coming of Christ. That's going to happen on the last day when Christ finally victoriously places his boot upon their neck. But notice the next line. All the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you. So submission here is not just grudging submission as one who now stands condemned. This is worshipful submission. This is the promise of Psalm 22. The ends of all the earth will hear and fear and turn to Yahweh. The covenant name is used. It's not just a general public piety. It's not a general public morality. It's actual conversion that's being described. And in Psalm 67, using the language of the ironic benediction, the ironic blessing, God be merciful to us and bless us and cause your face, cause his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you shall judge the peoples righteously and govern the nations on earth. When is God going to govern the nations? Now you can say, right now, Jesus is governing the nations. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. That's certainly true. He is secretly guiding the nations according to his eternal decree. Everything's working out according to his ultimate plan. And yet, do we see the acknowledgement of Christ's lordship in most nations? No, I would, I would say we see the opposite. We see the denial of Christ's lordship in most nations. And yet notice as the psalmist continues, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Are we just saying, well, this is, this is our desire. You know, th these are the kinds of things we pray for. We pray for things that we wish would happen and we know we're not going to. Right? Now, that's not the way the New Testament teaches us to pray. I mean, Jesus says, when you pray, believe that you have received the things that you ask for. That's, that's the model for prayer. Matthew 21, Mark chapter 11, that's the model for prayer, is that generally speaking, there may be exceptions, 
There's that Garden of Gethsemane moment where we know that what I'm asking is not the will of God so far as He's revealed it, but, but I, I'm working through that praying that God's will would be done and not what I'm asking Him to do. Right? Jesus is negating His request in the Garden. Not my will, but Thine be done. There are moments like that. The general pattern for petitionary prayer in the Scripture is that you are either praying for something that God has already promised to do, or you are praying for something that you have good reason to believe God is willing to do. And that will change the way that you pray for the sick, by the way. I'm just telling you, it's not wrong to pray for the sick. We just did a moment ago. And we prayed for God to grant healing according to His will. You can still pray for healing, but you're going to spend a lot more time praying for the sick about the things that God has promised to do or that you have good reason to believe that He's willing to do, then you are laboring, you know, praying earnestly that, that this person who is 99 years old and has their seventh round of cancer, that God, we just need you to heal this person. You're saying, why? Why? There's a hundred things that I could be praying for this person short of miraculously healing their body so as to prolong their life on this world away from Jesus, Right? So Jesus says, when you pray, believe that you have the things that you've asked for and you will receive them. So the psalmists are teaching us not to just say, oh, wouldn't it be great if all of the people would praise the Lord, but we know that's not going to happen, right? Let all the people praise you, God, but nevertheless, thy will be done, not ours. We know you want most of the world to go to hell, so you, just, you go ahead and do that and we'll just continue to, to have a more pious hope than what you're willing to do. No, that's, that's not what we're praying here. We're praying, God, bring the day when your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Then, notice, let the peoples praise you, then the earth shall yield her increase. Wait a second. Wait. Is Psalm 67 telling us that the earth is going to be blessed by worshiping the Lord? As a matter of fact, it is. And that's what the whole Old Testament has been telling us. We saw that in the Deuteronomic blessings promised in Deuteronomy chapter 28. God, our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. And all the ends of the earth shall fear him. And again, it's not just, as I think all Orthodox Christians would affirm, it's not just that some people from the ends of the earth, right? That every nation will have its remnant. There's going to be a token Assyrian, a token Babylonian, a token Persian. You know, somebody from every people group is going to be represented, right? One out of a million is going to be plucked like a, a, a brand from the burning. No, that, that's not what the psalmist is saying. The ends of the earth will fear the Lord. It's a promise. And we saw it again and again. Now, tonight... We're coming to the last part of the Old Testament evidence, and that is the prophets. Now, I do want to say, and you can go back to the first session of this particular series at the beginning of the month, when we kind of laid out this 15-point plan, this 15-step guide to our study. Some of these passages we're going to come back to multiple times. Some of them we're going to look at in in a lot more detail. And in fact, before we're done, we're going to spend at least one or two sessions just looking at kind of defeaters to what we've been affirming over these many weeks. We're going to talk about objections. Yet, but what about when the Bible says this? What about the, these other questions that can be raised? So it's not to say that these are the only times we're going to come to these passages, but they are passages to think about in the general context of our study right now. What is the general trajectory? What's the general tone? Is there generally optimism about not the end of the world, but the future of this present world? That's really what we're discussing in this series. Every Orthodox Christian is optimistic about the end of the story. Jesus wins. Jesus comes back and wins, right? So we all agree on that. But the question is, is there any reason for optimism between now and then? 
Are we expecting that there is going to be progress in the gospel's influence among the nations, or are we going to see the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of darkness running on roughly parallel trajectories? Well, notice what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. And these passages are on, on your handouts. We may turn to some, but I, I try to put as many there as possible to expedite our study. Isaiah chapter 2, beginning at verse 2. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of Yahweh's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem." There's a lot that I want to say about this passage. I'm going to say just a few things very, very briefly. First of all, notice that the idea of mountains is strongly associated with the idea of kingdoms throughout the Old Testament. This is a very common motif. It's going to be very important when you get to the New Testament and Jesus makes this odd promise about if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be moved from here to there and throw it into the sea. Right? He's not talking about a, a pile of rock falling into a body of water. He's building upon an Old Testament motif. So this idea of mountains is very important. And what is going to be the largest mountain? What is going to be the highest mountain? It's going to be the mountain of the house of the Lord. It's going to be the temple mount. It's going to be Zion. And this this corresponds to what we will see in a moment in Daniel chapter 2, where the kingdom of God, uh, set up in the days of the Roman Empire, is like a rock cut out without hands that grows into a mountain, and the mountain then fills the earth. So that's what you're seeing here in Isaiah chapter 2. You're seeing a mountain that is higher than all of the other mountains, and all the nations shall flow to it. Now, I want to say that there is good reason to doubt what I think is a typical assumption on the part of many evangelically-minded Christians that all of our national identities and distinctiveness falls away in the eternal state. I think there's some reason to doubt that in Scripture. But I do think that that is the general assumption, and so I'm going to play on that assumption for just a second. If most evangelical Christians believe that in this future kind of utopian, although it's not not no place after all, right? It's the future eternal state that at that point nations are going to be irrelevant. We're not going to have kings. We're not going to have nations. We're not going to have boundaries. We're not going to have borders. Well, then this is not talking about that, is it? Because nations are flowing to the house of the Lord. All the nations. Not just, not just Israel, not just one or two nations that have been converted. All the nations are going to flow to the house of God. And what are they going to say? They are going to say, come and let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob. To what end? That he may teach us his ways. And what will we do then? We shall walk in his paths. This is conversion. This is conversion. Now, you could say, but, but pastor, is it conversion of every person in every nation? I, I don't think so. I think we're going to see some evidence, if not tonight, the next week in the New Testament that says pretty clearly that's not the case. It's not universal regeneration of every individual in the world. But what are you seeing? You're seeing the nations flowing to the house of God in order to learn the way of God and to walk in it. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, a Christmas passage as we think of it, but it's not. It's a political passage. It's a kingdom passage. Notice what it says. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, what does your Bible say there? There will be stagnation 
of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Do you see that in the text? His kingdom is going to continue to grow. Now, I think many Reformed Christians, many evangelical Christians would say, well, yes, his kingdom is going to continue to grow because people are going to continue to be saved. People are going to continue to be added to it. But at the same time, the kingdom of darkness is going to grow. And so we're going to see both of them. So, so what are we saying then? That the increase of the kingdom of the evil one uh, shall, you, shall have no end? Is that, is that what we're saying? That, that neither of them have an end? No, that's not the picture at all. It's the kingdom over which the Messiah is going to rule is going to continue to grow until that administration, until that governance, until that reign has overcome, overtaken all other kingdoms. This is the everlasting one. The kingdoms of men are destined to fall upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will perform this. This passage is going to be tremendously important when we come to the New Testament and we see the emphasis that first Jesus and then the apostles in the Gospels and the book of Acts give to the kingdom in their preaching. And we've talked about this a little bit before, right? Not all of this material is brand new. You've heard some of these things over the last couple of years, two or three years. The gospel of the kingdom is the message that Jesus brings. And he's building off passages like uh, these in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11, the entire chapter uh, could be profitably read. Here's just a couple of highlights from it. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. Oh, there you go. That's, that's the second coming. That's the final judgment. That is the destruction of the evildoers. Well, yes, I mean, Jesus is going to do that at the second coming. Yeah, I, I mean, yes and amen. Lord, hasten the day. I, we, we want to see that happen. But remember, there's more than one way to slay the wicked. There's more than one way to ruin the rebel. Saul of Tarsus is consenting to the death and arguably supervising the death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And then he is uh, making havoc of the church in Jerusalem. And then he is taking letters from the chief priests and going to extradite any Christians he can find in Damascus in the region of Syria when Jesus ruins him. I mean, he just wrecks him. He appears to him on the road to Damascus, puts him on his face and says, now go preach. And Paul dies. So there's more than one way for Jesus to arrest and bring to an end the wicked and their ways. And notice what Isaiah goes on to say about this judgment of the Lord. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The result of Jesus' judgment of the wicked is that the earth, not heaven, but the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord just as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him. We could translate that nations as well. The nations where the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. Evidently, this is a judgment on the other side of which there is a global salvation, a global peace. And remember, these promises that we're looking at very much stand in the already but not yet tension of New Testament theology, New Covenant uh, reality. Already, Jesus is reigning, but we don't yet see His reign as fully consummated as we one day expect to see. Already, uh, the, the saints are saved, but that's not yet in the fullness that one day we expect to find, and so on and so forth, right? Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. He has already crushed the head of the serpent And yet he has not yet fully manifested that victory in the ways that these passages speak about. We're seeing this 
in the outworking of the Great Commission, but it has not yet reached the fullness that is described by Isaiah. Notice that Jesus will slay the wicked by the word of his mouth, by his law, by his gospel. And when he arises, the light will draw all the nations to him, as the latter chapters of the book of Isaiah, chapter 60 in particular, say. Let's go down to the book of Daniel for just a minute. I want you to take your Bible and turn to Daniel chapter 2. This was more text than we could easily fit on the handout. It was long as it was. But you'll remember that in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. He doesn't know what it means. He knows that it means something. He calls in his wise men. He says, tell me what my dream meant. They said, that's fine. You tell us what you dreamed and we'll tell you what it means. He says, no, you tell me what I dreamed and then tell me what it meant. And I'll know that you're telling me the truth. And they say, there's nobody who can do that. And Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, you're all a bunch of frauds. I'm going to kill all of you. And Daniel sends word and says, let's let's kind of hold off on that slaying all of the wise men in the kingdom for just a minute and let some of the wise men pray because there is a God in heaven who can answer this question. And then the answer is revealed to Daniel and he brings the revelation of this dream and its interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar. Notice uh, the explanation that, that Daniel begins to give. He says in verse 27 as he comes before the king, Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. But for our sakes who who make known the interpretation to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. You, O king, were watching and behold a great image. This great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile." As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. Just as an aside, that's a really astonishing description of the Roman Empire. Just like completely as an aside from our study tonight. Verse 44. And in the days of these kings, which kings? The kings of that fourth empire. 
Well, now, which, which empire is that? Well, if Nebuchadnezzar and the Neo-Babylonian Empire is the head of gold, what's the, what's the kingdom after that? The Medes and the Persians. That would be the chest and arms of silver. What's the kingdom after that? The third kingdom. That would be the belly and thighs of bronze. That's the Greeks. And then who would be that fourth kingdom? It would be the Romans. It would be the Roman Empire. This is, this is not difficult to understand. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Now, a dispensationalist will say that kingdom that Jesus came to establish was not actually established in the days of the historic Roman Empire, but there's going to be a revived Roman Empire, and then the kingdom will be established then, because Jesus is obviously not a king yet. I'd say, obvious nothing. He rises from the dead and he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The New Testament refers to him as the king of all kings and lord of all lords, the blessed and only potentate. What are you talking about? The very language that is used of Nebuchadnezzar here is used of Jesus to the tenth power. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of all kings. Jesus is the king of all kings. This kingdom is established during the days of the Roman Empire. And if you think that it hasn't been, well, you have the wrong conceptions about the nature of this kingdom. Right? There's, there's a spiritual reality to this kingdom. But, but does it stop there? See, this is the issue. In many cases, you have Christians, just as Jews in Jesus' day, who have political preconceptions about the nature of this kingdom. And because the kingdom didn't meet those preconceptions, didn't fit their assumptions, they reject Jesus as the Messiah, or they say the kingdom hasn't been established yet. But on the flip side, the ditch on the other side of the road, you have a lot of Christians who say the kingdom is spiritual in nature, and therefore all of, all of this description of the, the ends of the earth and the nations coming to worship and everybody praising the Lord, that's, that's just figurative because we know that the kingdom is spiritual, not physical. Well, now listen to what Daniel says. Verse 45, Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. This is what's going to happen. That kingdom that God sets up in the days of the Roman Empire is going to overcome all other kingdoms of men. It's going to be a stone that becomes a mountain that becomes the world. It grows to cover the entire earth. That's the expectation. So so there are ditches on both sides of the road. We could say that the Jews in Jesus' day, they had certain assumptions about what the Messiah was going to do. Jesus didn't satisfy those assumptions. Like They're saying, we, we want somebody who's going to kick the Romans out. Uh, we, we want somebody to restore independence the way that the Maccabees did. We want somebody who is going to adhere to and support and, and fawn over the religious establishment. And Jesus comes in, he's flipping over tables, he's running off money changers, he's denouncing the scribes and the Pharisees, and he's telling people to pay taxes to Rome. This is not the king that we want. But on the flip side, we have many Christians who have so spiritualized the kingdom that they can live in a world where no one, it seems like, is acknowledging the reign of the Lord Jesus. So we say, that's okay, Jesus is still king. He's just kind of a secret king. And nobody outside of the church is ever going to know about it. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven means save the handful of us that happen to be on the ark and send everyone else to hell. But you see, that's not the general tone and that's not the trajectory of what these passages say. The, The language of these prophecies, the language of the Psalms, and the preaching of Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament is astonishing, politi- astonishingly political, right? Not political in the way that we think of political, right? Where there's a, there's a debate, you know, tonight and we're in an early primary season. No, not, not in that sense. 
but in the sense that it relates to the governance of cities, the governance of the state, the governance of human society. It's astonishingly political. And this kingdom that's going to be established in the days of the Roman Empire is going to grow. It's going to break in pieces and consume all of the other kingdoms of men. Then when we skip forward to Daniel chapter 7, this one is on your study guide, verse 13, Daniel says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Not some from among all peoples. Not a representative elect from among the peoples. All peoples. Does that mean every single person is going to be saved? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But does that mean that a tiny remnant of the world population is going to be saved and the rest of the peoples are going to serve Jesus by going to hell? That doesn't seem to be what it's saying. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. What is this? It is the outworking of Psalm 2. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. It's the outworking of Psalm 72, Psalm 22, Psalm 110. It's the outworking of the Abrahamic promise that in you all families of the earth will be blessed. It's the outworking of the dominion mandate. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue it. That doesn't just mean tame lions and tigers and bears. That means make men followers of Christ. Nebuchadnezzar's dream is not merely that the church would be established alongside the kingdoms of men. It is not that the divine kingdom will be built and then the rest of the nations will be destroyed. The vision shows the kingdom of God growing and expanding and finally filling the whole earth. And I would ask you, whose kingdom will be greater? Will it be the kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of Satan? And again, many Christians, they have a cataclysmic view of Christ's eschatological victory. Right? What, what, does that, what does that mean? His eschatological victory, his final, consummate, ultimate triumph happens in a cataclysmic fashion. Because that's the way Jesus does judge nations. And we do see in Revelation chapter 20, we'll get there soon enough, we're going to see that there's going to be a last persecution. And yes, Jesus is going to deal with that in maybe a dramatic way. But in many people's minds, this kingdom is going to remain small, hidden, insignificant until finally the end comes. And what I'm trying to suggest is that that's just not what these passages say. It's not one or two verses that you've got to deal with. It's not, it's not one or two ideas. It, it's throughout your Bible. It's from Genesis to Revelation. And sure, there are, there are difficult passages for, for anyone and for everyone. There are, I'm, I'm not suggesting that we've got all of this figured out and there are no reasonable questions that could be raised. But what I am trying to do is put in your lap the weight of evidence and say this is an awful lot to explain away on the basis of your assumptions about few there be that find it. Or the world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And you know that means that it's always going to be that way until Jesus comes again. doesn't seem to be what the prophets and the psalmists and the apostles actually thought. The prophet Habakkuk echoes the language in, the, uh, in uh, Isaiah chapter 11 when he says in Habakkuk 2 and verse 14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. It doesn't say the earth will be filled with the glory of Yahweh. I mean, sure, it will be. It is right now. I mean, like you see 
we saw rainbows yesterday, right? You hear thunder, you see lightning, you see mountains, you see trees, you see birds, like the glory of Yahweh is all around you. That's not what this passage is saying. It says the earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh. Right now, you live in the midst of people who do not recognize the glory of Yahweh that surrounds them. But one day they will. And that knowledge is personal, it's covenantal, it's, it's salvific. Not for every single individual, no. We have to keep giving that qualification. But look at the text for what it says. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh. When? When is that going to happen? After Jesus returns, casts the wicked into hell, and destroys the world in fire? That's what a lot of people believe. But it's not what the text says. The prophet Zephaniah. This is one that uh, I'd like to spend a lot of time on. Zephaniah and Zechariah. But I'll just remind you. Last year, was it? I don't remember when it was. We finished up our series on the book of the 12. Maybe it was earlier this year. I don't know. The Minor Prophets on Wednesday nights, and all of those are recorded, and you can go back and we walk through uh, each of these chapters, paragraph by paragraph. But Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, describes a day of judgment uh, in which Yahweh would not only punish the ungodly, but also discipline and purify his saints. And he says there that he would give his people a pure lip, literally, a pure language in most English translations there. And the connotation there is their beliefs, their ideas. It's, it's what's happening at Babel. They're not, they don't have a pure lip. They have confusion. And now here, as a result of the judgment, there will be this unity so that people can call upon the Lord in faith. And the Lord says through Zephaniah that worshipers would come from afar, not only from Israel and Judah, but even from Ethiopia, from all nations, from all people groups. Because this is the kingdom that covers the face of the earth and ultimately overcomes every other kingdom of man. He talks about the humility of that people. That, that global conversion, really, he describes it in, in what we would think of as very New Testament terms. It's not just this outward kind of political accommodation. It's not just this insincere religious ritual where we have kind of a formality, you know, an outward appearance of piety, an outward appearance of godliness while denying the power thereof. You think about, I mean, it, it, it's actually quite amazing with the coronation of the king recently, King Charles, and the hymns that were sung, the scriptures that were read, the, the prayers that were offered, it's really remarkable. Like, you see the, the state religion and, and, the, and the pageantry and all of that, and yet I suspect that most American evangelicals were probably kind of disgusted by it. They might be fascinated by it and disgusted by it because they're looking at that and saying, how compromised, how hypocritical, how corrupt. How many of those people in that room going through the motions of worship that day are actually hypocrites under greater condemnation because of these prayers, right? Well, no doubt that was true of many of them. But you see, you read Zephaniah chapter 3, that's not what you find. You don't find just this empty pageantry, this outward formality. You don't see the religion of the Pharisees described. You see true humility. You see shame for sin. And you see a sincere calling upon the Lord for salvation, knowing that Yahweh is king. What about when we get to the book of Zechariah? In Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Because as Zechariah says in chapter 14, Yahweh shall be king over all the earth. But will anyone know it? That's my question. Will anyone know it? You can affirm that and say, well, yeah, Jesus is king right now, pastor. Yeah, I, I believe that too. He is king right now. 
But does anyone know it? Well, yeah, we know it right here in this room, like all 25 or 30 of us, right? Isn't that, isn't that marvelous? Well, it is marvelous. Praise God for that. But is that all that the prophets and the Psalms are teaching us to expect? Is that the outworking of the dominion mandate? Let's say, to, to, to those that say, the creation mandate, the dominion mandate, is ultimately accomplished by the work of Christ. Yes and amen. Yes and amen. We said that last week. But what exactly does that look like? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it by bringing 25 or 30 people on a Wednesday night to acknowledge that Jesus is king? Is that filling the earth and subduing it? Or is this the mustard seed? Is this the leaven being planted in the lump of dough that will eventually transform the earth over which Yahweh is king? You see, in this series, I'm not really dealing a lot with dispensationalism or historic premillennialism. I'm dealing more with the kind of eschatological assumptions and convictions and questions that we're going to have in a more confessionally reformed community. And so if you're coming from you know, more of a dispensational background, it may just be mind-boggling to think of, of Jesus being king right now at all. I'm almost taking for granted that most of us realize that he is. But nevertheless, I think the passages, wherever you're at, are going to challenge and stretch your thinking. Yahweh will be recognized as the true God. That's what Zechariah says. Not just one of many, but the one Lord who reigns over all. And and, and I I said this when we taught through this passage, but let me just remind you that many commentators in in this part of Zechariah will note that the text here in chapter 14 could be translated, Yahweh shall be king over all the land. And that's true. They're making a correct observation about the language, but they're missing the point entirely. Because this promise in Zechariah 9 and 14 is not that Jesus or that Yahweh would rule in Israel and leave the nations to the other gods. It's that Yahweh's authority as king will be acknowledged everywhere. Because the future of the present world is not pluralism, it is biblical piety. And this is the fundamental argument that I'm trying to convince you of in this series. I don't care at the end of it whether you say I'm a post-millennialist or not. I, I really don't care about that. But I am very interested in your level of optimism about the impact that the gospel is going to have on the world. If you believe that the world is going to just continue getting worse, the Bi- I mean, after all, the New Testament, we'll, we'll come to this defeater one, one of these days, right? 2 Timothy 3, evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So that means the whole world's going to just keep getting worse, Pastor, except, except that that's not what that passage actually says. It, it says that evil men will grow worse and worse, but, but that's not what it says about the earth. It's not what it says about the world. That the future of this world is not pluralism. It's not a a, a general civil peace established on the basis of natural law. It's biblical piety. It's reverence for the true God. It's repentance for the nations. It's not perfect, no. But it is comprehensive. And it is cultural. And you can see that at the end of the book of Zechariah. At the end of chapter 14, Zechariah describes the sanctification of the entire society. From the bells on the horse's bridles to every chamber pot. Right? It's all consecrated. It's all holy. It's all to the ostensible service of the Lord. So there's no longer a secular category because even what is common is now going to be cleansed and it's going to be consecrated in some way. No Canaanite will be in the Lord's house. 
There may be some in the surrounding nations, and we would see that even in some of Jesus' prophecies and and, uh, parables. But there will be no Canaanite in in the Lord's house. There's going to be a true church, and it's going to be global in its extent. And then finally, the prophet Malachi. In Malachi chapter 1 and verse 11, the Lord says to the prophet, For from the rising of the sun even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place incense shall be offered to my name in a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations, says Yahweh of hosts. My name will be great among the nations. When? How? To what extent is that true? Now, again, you could say, well, well, Pastor, that there's some figurative language there. Yeah, absolutely. The prophets are full of figurative language. There's all kinds of symbols. There's all kinds of literary motifs and theological images. Yes and amen. But figurative language means something. It means something. What does it mean? How many times does the Lord have to make these promises? How many different ways does He have to say it before we begin to think, Maybe, maybe this work of salvation is going to be larger than what I've assumed. Maybe this idea of praying that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven is more earthy than I've actually realized. And, and I've shared this before. This, this was my experience. I mean, it was, it, was, it was several years of people coming to me and saying, so you're a post-millennialist. And, no, no, I'm an optimistic all-millennialist. But what was happening is the language of the prophets that I was teaching through and the language of the Psalms that I was praying every morning and evening for multiple years, that language was beginning to infuse itself into my prayers and into my preaching. More than I even realized. And, and I mean, literally, I had multiple brothers come to me and say, well, you know, you, you pray like a post-millennialist. You preach like a post-millennialist. Yeah, but I'm not a post-millennialist. Well, again, I don't, I don't care what you call yourself. For me, there was a sticking point that post-millennialism had a very specific connotation. It has to look like this. And to be a post-millennialist, I have to be like that. And it was only once I began realizing that maybe, maybe it's not quite as monolithic as what I had imagined. Maybe there's some room for, for admittedly, even, even some questions to say, I don't know exactly how some of this is going to work out. I don't know exactly what the fullest extent of this is going to look like. I can't answer every question that I have. I may not be able to answer every question that you have. But these passages mean something. And the Bible says it again and again and again and again and again. And it finally just comes down to the question of, do you believe believe what the the Bible says? And and I don't mean to state that in an overly aggressive way, but but like there are so many things that the Bible affirms that we, we can't fully understand. We can't fully explain. How did, the, how did God world, make the world in the space of six days? <laughs> right? How did Jesus rise from the dead? We say, well, he's the son of God. That's obvious. Yeah, he's the son of God. But what exactly is the mechanism that, that causes him to be raised from the dead? I mean, how does he walk on the surface of the water? How does he speak to the winds of the wave? And, it, and the storm stops. Like, there's all kinds of things I can't fully understand mechanically. But I believe it. I believe it. We have to loosen our grip on what we assume we know and begin to believe in what we may not be able to fully understand. Which brings us back, and this is not irrationalism, by the way. This is not close your eyes, put your hand over your heart, take a leap out into the dark and hope you land somewhere. That's not what I'm saying. But it does take us back to this principle that we have articulated many, 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 many times before and most recently over the summer in one of our historical lectures on Anselm and his theology, that expression, credo ut intelligum, I believe in order that I may understand. There are certain things that I can only understand from the inside of faith. 
They're saying it's, it's not irrationalism. It's not just taking a, a chance. But, but there are certain things that I realize that I may not be able to answer every question that I have, and yet I can't deny the reality of who God is and what He has done in Christ. Can I deny what He has promised about the future of this present world? Well, what, what do these Old Testament promises and prophecies that we've surveyed last week and this week mean? We could summarize it in just a few points. First of all, the once good creation will be redeemed and the work of the serpent will be overcome by Christ. We talked about this a little bit at the end of our class last week. Let me just kind of remind you of what we said there. The expectation is that the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent and that has a more expansive uh, expectation and fulfillment in Scripture than just Jesus' death and resurrection. I realize that Jesus' death and resurrection is the ultimate Right? It's, it is the definitive moment of victory. But remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 16. He says to the Christians in Rome, the Lord will soon crush Satan under your feet. You say, well, Paul is denying the sufficiency of the atoning work of Christ. No, he's not. No, he's not. He's just acknowledging that the death blow that Jesus strikes in the crucifixion and resurrection is not the final blow. It's not the end even if it's the beginning of the end. The, the dragon is cast down at the ascension of Christ. Revelation chapter 12. He knows that his time is short. So what does he do? He goes out to make war on the, ch- on the woman and the rest of her children, the church. Because he knows that he's lost. That's where we're at. Look, at. look at our culture right now. What do you see? You see the rise of madness. But, but is that causing you disquiet in your soul? This is self-defeating insanity. This, this, this is not the calculated progress and success of evil. This is the death throes of a serpent that is mortally wounded and knows that he's bleeding out. Amen. And that's what you're seeing in the outworking of the nations right now is that God is shaking every kingdom that can be shaken until only the unshakable kingdom remains, as he says in Hebrews chapter 12. So the once good creation is going to be redeemed and the work of the serpent, it's not just the serpent is going to be defeated, it's that the work of the, the seed of the serpent, it's not just one, it's not just Satan, it's the seed of the serpent is going to be overcome by the seed of the woman. Secondly, the covenant made with Abraham will bring blessing to all nations by the rule of David's son. That's what we see as as this promise continues to develop. It receives more clarity as each covenant administration kind of advances. We see this promise, this global expectation, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. It's going to come through Abraham's family. It's going to come through Abraham's offspring. It's going to come through David's heir. And David's heir is going to sit on David's throne, and it's going to be through him that this blessing is going to spread out everywhere. It was never just for Israel. It was never just for Israel. It was always through Israel for the whole world. And third, Yahweh will be acknowledged as king by all the nations who will one day turn to him in faith, worship him as the true God, and render obedience to him as the sovereign Lord. There are just so many passages we looked at last week and this that say that. Uh, but one that I just continually return to in my own mind is at the end of Psalm 22. And we read it last week. I referred to it tonight. Let me read it again. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven: All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to Yahweh. Is that true or not? Uh, like that, that promise can't be fulfilled by the second coming in judgment. 
Do you understand why I say that? Like, look at it again. Psalm 22, 27. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to Yahweh. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. That, that promise cannot be fulfilled by the second coming in judgment. The second coming in judgment is a real, real thing. It's going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And the wicked, the evildoer, the unbelievers can be cast into hell. Lake of fire. That's their future. That is not remember, turn, and worship Yahweh. That's not what that is. Hell is not filled with worshipers. Hell doesn't have any repentant people in it. So when do the ends of all the earth remember, turn, and worship the true God? Again, you could say, well, it's just, it's just some people in the ends of the world. right? It's representative pockets. But is that what it says? And is that what all of these other passages say? For the kingdom is Yahweh's, and He rules over the nations. That's true. It's true. You say, I just don't see it right now. That's interesting. And completely irrelevant. There's all kinds of things that you can't see right now that you nevertheless believe because the Bible says it's true. And the question is, does your eschatology work in the same way? And so, just in summary, and this is on the last page of your handout, let me just, let me just read this part of the conclusion to kind of wrap this up. We'll pray. We'll take any questions. I, I, I may preview real quick. I've got a couple minutes. I, I may preview the, the next part uh, in just a minute. Since you've already got the handout, you're going to be able to look ahead and Kind of spoil it all. But the conclusion says this. The scriptures speak of the persistence of evil, the ongoing reality of trials, and the final persecution which the church will face prior to the final advent or coming of Christ. On this we can all agree. But it says more than this. It says that the nations will remember and turn to the Lord. They will be converted in some way, in large part, to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Does this mean every single person will be born again? No. No doubt many of the citizens in Nineveh who sat in sackcloth and ashes proved not to have true repentance over time. But was the world poorer as a result of the capital of the Assyrian Empire humbling itself before the throne of God? Would we despise the hope for such an event in our own nation? Do we believe the gospel is powerful enough to accomplish it? Every nation will come and worship the Lord. Jesus is Lord, and the kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdoms of our Lord Jesus Christ. So say the Scriptures. And so the church is obligated to say amen. It does not matter whether you see it or not. The church sees truth by divine revelation received by faith. The church is led by the Spirit and shaped by her liturgy. We should not think too little of the gospel's power, too little of God's promises, and too much of the present madness. We are not supposed to read the scriptures through the lens of whatever evil is in the news. We are to read the news through the lens of God's promises. We may not all agree on when and how these gospel promises will be fulfilled in the world, We may not be able to know, but what we can know is that it is in Christ, by the gospel, that these promises will be fulfilled. We should believe that our Lord is doing this right now as the gospel goes forth and continues to be proclaimed, and we can be certain that His decree shall never pass away. All that He has intended and promised will be accomplished, and that work, in whatever form it takes, will be completed in the end. I read that last week. I read it again tonight because I want these ideas to be almost like Chinese water torture in your mind. Seriously, in 2012, the first time I interviewed with, you know, what was going to become this church, this church, but in its earlier form, uh, one of the elders asked me in the interview, he was like, what's your philosophy of preaching? I said, I think faithful preaching is like Chinese water torture. And he didn't like that. Right? 
But the point is that I don't think it's going to be one lesson. I don't think it's going to be one passage. Sometimes, sometimes there are issues like that. I realize that. There's probably been some, something in your Christian life where there was just a dramatic moment where it was a, a, a certain time you heard the gospel, a certain sermon, a certain passages, and just like certain things clicked into place. But let's face it. Most of what you believe as a Christian, most of the progress you've made in your Christian life hasn't come like that. It's been that slow, steady drip over time. It wasn't the first time you heard me say something or your Sunday school teacher say something or your mom say something. It was the 115th time. And then suddenly it's like, why didn't you say it that way before? And you say, what are you talking about? I said it exactly that way before. But for whatever reason, that time things just clicked together. Right? So it's, it's, it's more just that slow, steady pressure that I want to put, put on you to say you've got to deal with these passages, you've got to deal with this expectation, you've got to deal with the language. And yeah, there may, be, there may be some that you feel like you can sneak around or get away from, but you're not going to get away from all of them, I don't believe. All right, so uh, that's, that's our study tonight. We'll, we'll finish in just a minute, but uh, you've already got the notes for session four, so let me just, just kind of anticipate where we're going here, and you can read ahead, uh, you can develop questions about this, and then we'll deal with it next week. Instead of going through just kind of like book by book or section by section, we're going to go basically through the New Testament in order, but think about it more thematically. We're going to talk briefly about Jesus' global mission of salvation, which is really what we dealt with in the second uh, session of this series, so we won't spend a lot of time there, but just to remind you of some of those ideas. Then we're going to spend a good bit of time talking about the gospel of the kingdom and how prominent the kingdom of God is in the preaching of Jesus and the apostles. We'll look at Jesus' kingdom parables, two of the parables that are very clearly you know, kind of post-millennial. These are, these are classic post-millennial proof texts, the parable of, of the leaven and the parable of the mustard seed. But then there's kind of the amillennialist parable, right? The parable of the wheat and the tares. And that's the one that an amillennialist goes to and says, well, the parable of the leaven doesn't mean what you think it means because of the wheat and the tares. I'm going to suggest to you another way of reading the wheat and the tares that I think uh, is consistent with the uh, general trajectory and theme that we're laying out. We're going to talk about the significance of Jesus promising to build a victorious church, the outworking of the Great Commission, how that's connected to everything that we've talked about, the gospel, that it's going to go to the uttermost parts of the earth and what that really means in the book of Acts, and then how it turns the world upside down. Um, We will spend a little bit of time talking about Romans chapter 11. This this may be the part that we will not be able to get to next week, but but we'll try. We'll see. Um, Romans chapter 11, very controversial, hotly disputed. I am not going to be dogmatic, but I am going to try and give you some reasons to believe that Scripture promises that the majority of Jews are going to come to faith in Jesus Christ before it's all said and done. We'll talk about the fact that the last enemy that Jesus destroys is death, and that's going to be at the resurrection, which means that all other enemies have to be subdued before the day of resurrection, which means before the second coming. The new covenant being the outworking of these Abrahamic promises. Everybody who kind of has a covenantal theology should already understand that, but we'll just make sure that that's clear in our minds. And then finally, we'll finish in the book of Revelation where we see that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and think about what that means. So that's the plan for our study of kind of the New Testament quick survey. And then beyond that, and that'll probably take us two weeks, but beyond that, we'll continue to work through that original list of 15 steps in this argument, and then deal with some objections, deal with some problem passages. We'll continue to do uh, questions uh, each week as, uh, as they come to you, so you can write those down, and uh, we talk about it then. But that's the plan, and that's our study tonight.